And welcome to episode 161 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke, back here at the Oaken Table to bring today to you the second part of our series covering the year 1991 in the World Wrestling Federation. Uh, If you did not hear the first part of our series, you can go back to the archives if you subscribe to us on iTunes or on Spotify. All the archives of the show are there. Last week, we talked about January through to March in 1991. Covering mainly the top angle, Hulk Hogan, Sergeant Slaughter, as well as the Ultimate Warrior losing the WWF title at the Royal Rumble. All the uh, the controversy with the Sergeant Slaughter angle was discussed last week, so if you want to hear uh, what went down, you can, of course, go back to that show last week. Today, however, we are covering WrestleMania 7 itself. We're going to be talking about the WBF and the moves that have been made uh, in January through March on the WBF side of things, as well as looking at all the action uh, elsewhere in the card, not in the main event, leading up to WrestleMania 7 in the World Wrestling Federation. So we've got a lot to cover today. I will be joined, of course, by uh, my good friend Kyle Ross from the Top Rep Nation podcast. So what I shall do right now is waste no more time. Let's take you now to cover WrestleMania 7. Uh, Meltzer says he doesn't have the exact crowd for Mania at the point of the show happening, but 200 shy of a sellout, roughly 15,500 fans. Uh, of course, he says, this show could have sold out under normal circumstances, but there were so many problems relating to the changing of the site and the exchanging of tickets uh, between venues that the WF really didn't know how many tickets to give away at the end to make sure the building looked packed. Uh, two weeks before the show took place, there were still something like 3,000 seats that were question marks because they'd already been paid for for the Coliseum, but the people buying them hadn't responded to the fact there'd been a change in venue to get their tickets exchanged. Uh, at that later date, it was obvious many of them weren't going to respond, so they didn't know how much to paper. Uh, and part of the reason is it's theorized is that since the site change was kept so quiet outside of L.A., uh, there were some who probably just didn't know even though there were mailers sent out to those who were out of town and the company had their addresses on file, they probably didn't know that the venue had actually changed. I'm hoping there were no one that actually showed up to the Coliseum on the day uh, yeah. wondering what the fuck was going on. But... Where's my wrestling show? Are they just yelling at the Coliseum? <laughs> that would be bad. Um, there is something interesting. They talked about this on Between the Sheets when they covered WrestleMania 7, I know. The logistics of getting a hold of ticket holders in a non-internet era, that is a nightmare. Like, now this would not be... A hard deal. First of all, you're not going to freaking kayfabe the venue change in 2020. But I mean, that had to be a complete nightmare to get a hold of, try to get a hold of people. And obviously, some people, you know, were left out in the cold. That's weird though, because you figure if you're local, and remember, WrestleMania wasn't a big traveling event quite yet. I mean, there was some travel, but mm. not um, nothing like it is today. But if you're local, you probably know about it. But like, yeah, if, like if you fly to LA. Like, did you, like, walk to the Coliseum and just give up? <laughs> like, that, that, that would be a real raw deal, man. I would, I mean, turn on the WWF for life. The show takes place. Hogan wins the belt, surprisingly. <laughs> uh, Randy Savage loses, also not super surprisingly. Um, and there's a quote here from Dave that I know you want to kind of sound off on a little bit. Uh, Melter says about the Savage-Warrior match, I'm not saying this as a knock-on Warrior, because he wasn't bad here, but if Savage had a real opponent, <laughs> between the match and the angle, they would have blown the top off the five-star system, he says. Uh, four and a quarter stars. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that's a fair quote. No, not particularly. 
okay. Because it's funny, he's admitting that, you know, they could have blown the top off the five-star system. But if if not for what, more athleticism? Like, I don't think athleticism would have made this a better deal. No. For the record, I view Warrior Savage as pretty easily in the top 20 matches in the history of the promotion. I'd agree. I'd probably agree I probably. I mean, that. it is a near five star match. Like, if you want to take points off, you know, like shade a quarter star because, eh, you don't know, like how Warrior pinned him with one foot, or you know, this was the, I believe, first instance of finisher prostitution. <laughs> yes, that indeed. we saw when Savage does the five elbows and Warrior kicks out. You know, that that was something that had not been seen. You know, kicking out of finishers, you, you didn't have it. All finishers were protected this era. But since he was retiring, I guess they figured they could do that and. To be honest, and to be fair, Savage uh, kicks out of the press slam, too. Yeah, so, um, But um, let's see what they – that's all made up for by the post-match angle, the reunion yeah. with Elizabeth, which is like one of the all-time great moments in the history of this company. I've seen somebody say this. I can't remember who it was, but they're completely correct. This match is Vince McMahon's vision of wrestling – Done best. Like, it, it was – Vince – like, it, it, I, I guess, like, to me, the problem with Dave's quote is it's just sort of like a a complete uh, – not a complete, but, like, it's sort of this, like, like not being willing to accept Vince McMahon's vision of wrestling. Yeah. Almost. It's a, Where it's, it's, it's like, it's like wrestling a fact, has it's to, a, it has yeah. to be athletic. Where it doesn't have to always be athletic. Yeah. This is, this is one where it's almost like a – the fact that it happens under Vince's watch and the Warriors in it puts a ceiling on how good it could possibly be because it couldn't be done any better than this. No, there is no way you could do it. And the Warrior, and again, we talked a lot about just how big of a star he was, and he didn't obviously work as champion, but him being, you know, one of the biggest stars in the company clearly is a key component. If this is a, if Randy Savage just has a work rate match without the angle, uh, you know, of the title change causing the match, this match is not as going to be as remembered. It just isn't. Yeah. So, um, you know, Dave's consistent. I'll give him that. You know, it doesn't surprise me that I would be higher on this match than Meltzer. And I'm not yeah. saying that, like, Dave's wrong or he's bad or you should, like, never listen to things. So I'm not saying that at all. I just think, to me, like, there are matches in WF history that have been rated above four and a quarter that are just simply not as good as this match. Yeah, I'd agree. It, I, I, it, it, it is a matter of opinion with these star ratings, but for me, it's it's pretty much as close. Because to, to me, a five star match, it, which you know, it's it's perfect, right? The whole idea is it's that's the, that's the that's the model of perfection. You don't give it out often because there are very few matches where you look at it and you say that couldn't be done any better. But I'm not really sure this could have been. I think an argument could be made it's the U.S. match of the year. Very possibly. I I, I definitely think it's better than Brett and Perfect at SummerSlam. Yeah. War Games and, 91. Uh, War Games, yeah, I think that's the contender. Um, what else did uh, the uh, tag at the Clash, Dustin and yes. uh, Steamboat against uh, the Enforcers? I think I think those would be like your top three right there. For sure. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm a big believer as well in in the idea that everything around the match, it's not just the bell to bell score, it's everything around the match, the production of it that is part of the grade. In the same sense that the aftermath helps Austin and Brett at Mania 13. Yes, the fact that Austin becomes a big star absolutely is part of the legacy of the match and should be discussed when rating that match. Um, you know, there's cool stuff, too. Like, I know it'd be funny if this would be viewed as, oh, they're 
you know, kind of burying the world title, if people would say that now. But there's this cool thing where uh, it's Warriors tights. It means much more than this. Oh, and it's like yeah. the belt. That is really cool. And the fact that he doesn't run to the ring, which, you know. Another great thing. A physical standpoint is good because it ensures he doesn't blow up because he's going long. Um, and But from a storytelling component, it's great, too, because it shows how serious he's taking it. And Heenan sells it real well. He's like, is that the ultimate warrior? Yeah. Why is he not running down like a maniac? That's like it's, – it's stuff like that that you don't need, like, all these spectacular moves when you can tell the story like that. Yeah. It's and, it's um, it's such a great production. Everything about it. Just again, like I say, the everything around the belt bell from from the second that the the production of the match begins is is where I start kind of grading these these things. I love that. I love that Savage gets this, the, the the elaborate ridiculous sentence like he always does. Warrior doesn't get caught up in the hubris of it all. He's taken dead serious. And the fact they zoom in, it's actually kind of a shock, really, when you think about it. They would zoom in on the tights that says, means much more than this, with the belt, knowing that's going on last. And it's, you know, the headline attraction. But yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, oh, I, no. I was gonna, I was gonna transition to the Hogan Slaughter match. Yes. And also, well, we should also first mention the quote, Gorilla Monsoon has, mm. uh, during the Warrior Savage match. Maybe that's the reason you should take a quarter star off when he claims <laughs> that this is the, uh, most successful pay-per-view of all time in the middle of a pay-per-view. I don't know. Yeah. Gor- Gorilla obviously had some pretty high up contacts at, uh, viewer's choice. He must, he must have because it takes a while for the actual number to come in uh, in the sheet. So, but, but you know, Gorilla's got the scoop. Yeah, a real sign of insecurity, like you talked about. I mean, for them to like say that, and it's so yeah. like weird too. It's like Vince clearly yelled it through the earpiece, right? Because yeah. it's so out of place when Gorilla says it. This is the most watched pay per view in the history of pay per view. It's like Jesus like, Christ. <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy. So, all right, the Hogan Slaughter match. Now we should talk about that. It's not bad. Is a match. But again, let's go back to what we just talked about. Okay, fine. Maybe it over-delivers in-ring-wise. Hogan bleeds, by the way, mm-hmm. which I don't think we had ever... No, he bled at WrestleMania 5, too, didn't he? So yeah. I guess that wasn't too novel. But it's not enough to overcome the tastelessness of the angle. And these guys, this is something you see a lot in 2020. I talk about it a lot of the Top Rope Nation podcast, where matches start out playing from behind. You're not interested they have to do so much to overcompensate to get you to care even just a little bit. That's kind of where this was. It's like, yeah, okay, Hulk and Sarge, they work their tails off, but it's not as good as the Warrior Slaughter match at the Rumble. No, it's And not. it just, the tastelessness was just way too much by this point to overcome. It's like, you know Hogan's going to win. So, yeah, it, that was Vince McMahon's first Mania main event misfire. I think I said that in the 1990s series. And it's very obvious watching the uh, show, you know, in retrospect. No, I'd agree with that completely. I think it's a real uh, interesting thing to note just looking at the crowd heat when you juxtapose this to the Rumble match. It feels like they're hotter at the Rumble. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Regis is trying and stuff. And (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't Bobby Heaton... He has a great Red Grange reference uh, to Regis when he talks about (laughs) Kathy Lee's husband. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Bobby, that's it again. Gifford for those keeping track. Yeah, one of those. Uh, another interesting performance from here and here. A lot of Rodney King references at WrestleMania Seven, by the way. Yeah, that's uh, talk about things that don't age well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, the perfect boss man stuff. I mean, yeah, you, you watch that, you're like, oh, jeez, well, like, you're less, 
let's make light of the LAPD. How can we make this show more tasteless? <laughs> We're already scraping the barrel anyway. Let's just let's just go the whole hog. Yeah. Uh, the show itself, the WF claims at first it did a 4.0 buy rate for 520,000 buys, which, if true, would have beaten Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior from the year before. So that's some good news. However, uh? the cable companies track it to a 2.8, which is significantly worse than Hogan and Warrior, which did its 3.8. Uh, so a full point down. And as it turns out, uh, Titan sent out a press release claiming the show appeared to have done the largest audience in the history of any event on pay-per-view. So it wasn't just something they stuck with, uh, yeah, with, with Gorilla. They actually touted that as a press release. About the same time, sources in viewers' choice in midweek the 160 systems out of 455 reporting uh, which was considered a, enough of a um, kind of a sample size ascertained the buy rate at a 2.8 so it actually did do worse than Hogan and Warrior yes and remember they had blamed the poor business and Dave talks about this a lot in the observers um, that the reason Mania 6 didn't do as well as hoped was the babyface versus babyface situation so yeah. people need to keep that in mind when we'll again get into alternate, you know, ideas in a moment here. But they were the you could they were not going to do another Hogan Warrior babyface versus babyface match. They were adamant it had to be a babyface overcoming a heel. Uh, and well, I guess it turns out that you know babyface versus babyface uh, is better than exploiting a war. Is what <laughs> As it, it turns is. out, yes, it was. Yes. So all right, let's get into the meat and potatoes here of WrestleMania 7 and its legacy a little bit. This is a massive two-year freefall in business. These numbers just went through. A mass, I mean, WrestleMania 5 did basically, what, almost double the number of buys WrestleMania 7 Pre- does? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. The only two-year freefall you can compare that to would be 17 to 19, WrestleMania-wise. Yeah. And that's um, kind of an outlier. Yes, and, and yeah, and WrestleMania 19, it's not like WrestleMania 19 was the start of a trend, like the number bumped right back up the year and, and just was always kind of pretty consistent. I mean, right, you're right, WrestleMania 19 was a total outlier, but, um, you know, I, I think there are some comparisons. That's a different pot. This is a different podcast for a different day talking about 89 to 91, the business downturn. We've obviously gone over that, but comparing it to the 2001 to 2003 downturn, um, you know, I, I think when you look at the creative and the on-screen product, um, it really shouldn't be that surprising that those were the two most massive two-year free falls yeah. in Mania business. Um, this is one of the few instances of WrestleMania doing a worse buy rate than the Royal Rumble. Oh, that's a hell of a stat. Yeah, I think the only other two were, again, 2003, and uh, where WrestleMania did the lowest number it did. That's WrestleMania 19, again. And then 97, I think, where <laughs> WrestleMania that was the did its worst buy rate ever. Yeah. Um, WrestleMania 13, where they, you know, the build was all thrown to hell and, uh, you know, they had Undertaker sit on top and it just wasn't good. And that show actually did fewer buys than WCW Uncensored. WrestleMania wasn't even the most bought wrestling pay-per-view that month. (laughs) It was not. I mean, that's, that's real bad. So to me, you've got to point the finger at Sergeant Slaughter and the angle, not Sergeant Slaughter, the person, um, but the character and the angle. It is very clear him winning the title, going in as the champion, had a terrible effect on business. And I believe that is why this show ultimately failed at the box office. Liam O'Rourke, I assume you agree with me, but uh, the floor is yours. 
No, I don't see there being much debate on this one at all. I think that when you look at, I think that Hogan, I, I do think it's funny when you look at where Hogan and Warrior are at the end of the previous year with Hogan struggling at the box office anyway. Warrior kind of picking up with, you know, with the, with the savage stuff. It feels like Hogan's not on a strong trajectory anyway, with the exception of those, that, that brief run of stretcher matches with Earthquake. Because even then, like the, the series with Earthquake was not doing well before the stretcher matches. It was kind of strange reading that back, how well those were doing. Hogan, Hogan wasn't, didn't really feel like the same guy anyway in terms of his own momentum. So when you have that feeling, especially, you know, I'm keen to ask you this, Kyle. You wanted Warrior to beat Hogan the year before. As a fan watching this, what was your kind of take on the fact they were going back to Hogan? It, it felt boring, to be honest with you. It yeah. felt like an admission of failure and going back to old hat. Like, it didn't, like, I think in WWF signs, they're like, oh, okay, well, Warrior didn't work, but we're going back to the Golden Goose Hogan. Yeah. And I think as a fan, you know, I... I you know, again, I'm 10 years old. I wouldn't have been able to verbalize it this way back then. But I think my thinking was probably like, eh, it's kind of boring. That's all Hogan's old moves. Like, I thought, you know, Hulk had moved on to immortality. I didn't think he had to be the WF champion anymore. <laughs> and, you know, it just, it did not feel exciting. Like, I think they thought, I think everyone thought everyone would be, oh, Hulk is back on top. Hulk is the champion. And it was nothing like when he regained the title at WrestleMania 5. Nothing at all. It was no. just could not have been colder. It just, it just, I don't know. At this point, Hulk's been around for seven years on top. That's a long time, even in modern standards. Uh, it just felt like they don't have anything else. It felt like they had a bad year, a bad year, a bad last 12 months. And well, going back to Hulk. And again, spoiler alert, we'll talk a lot about it in part two. It didn't help. So again, it's not like it's just me being an asshole or whatever, not like a Hulk Hogan. It's it's very clear that nothing about this worked. You're right. Slaughter is a big part of the equation. It's what's remembered. But going back to Hulk Hogan very clearly wasn't a great idea either. No, because because the numbers speak to it. Um, I know that you have a point about WrestleMania 7's legacy as a show compared to its actual merit. Yes. Yeah, so, OK, when I watched WrestleMania 7 at the time, I did not watch it live on pay-per-view, but I you know rented the Coliseum home video not long after. Uh, when it was over, I remember distinctly thinking it was the worst WrestleMania I had seen since I'd become a fan. Like, I didn't really like one and two. Wow. Because I, uh, you know, I, I wasn't a fan. Then, like, I, I started watching in 80, late 86. Uh, so, you know, of all the WrestleManias that had been built to during my fandom, this is the one after it was done that I liked the least. Hmm. Yes, even more than WrestleMania 4. I liked WrestleMania 4 as a kid, I guess maybe because it was the double video or, oh, you know, yeah. I, I would have a four hour <laughs> excuse to watch wrestling. I mean, but now, you know, when you look past the tastelessness, which is hard to do, but if you look past it as a wrestling show, I think WrestleMania 7 is better than the three previous manias. Certainly WrestleMania 4. Uh, I've changed my opinion a lot since I was a kid on that one. And then five and six. Um, there's fun stuff on this undercard. We're going to get into what's going on on the undercard and the promotion in a little bit. But I think that's fair to say. WrestleMania 7, despite having this horrible legacy of a venue change and a tasteless angle on top, it's not like a bottom five mania. No, not at all. It it might still be bottom ten. I don't know. But, again, I like it better than five and six. And, I mean, what are the worst manias? Right? Nine. It's better than WrestleMania. Oh, 
11, it's better than WrestleMania 11. Uh, 32. I'd rather 32, watch WrestleMania 7 than WrestleMania 32. 27. Yeah. Maybe 29? Too? 29 didn't have, yeah, 29 doesn't have much going for it at all. You know, cause I'll, I'll take Warrior Savage over Taker Punk any day. 15 kind of stinks. <laughs> 15 really stinks. Uh, 2 isn't good. No. Like I said, I mean, that has one of, I mean, Jesus, everyone's just trying to get out of the ring as quick as possible there. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of WrestleMania's worse than WrestleMania 7. Uh, I did remember something though, as, uh, with the venue change. I want to talk about that one more time. When I rented the Coliseum Home video, I can't recall if I was like, hey, this isn't the LA Sports Arena. <laughs> I distinctly remember a couple years later, like I had watched WrestleMania 6 when the, the Coliseum Home video was still on there. They're hyping LA Sports. I was like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> it didn't happen at the, LA, like, at the LA Sports Arena. That's right. What happened with that? And, you know, I was not online yet and stuff of that nature, but, um, so I can't remember when I, as someone who, because again, you mentioned in the notes earlier that they just started saying WrestleMania 7 is going to be in LA yeah. the last couple of weeks of television. So I can't honestly recall if at the time the venue change was something that I realized right away. Yeah. I, it, similar. So in that regards, maybe WWF kind of, it kind of worked. You know, stupid kids like me are like, oh, okay. <laughs> in LA, like I said. Yeah, it, it's 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 weird because Seven's a show that I think a lot of people find tough to judge. You know, it, it feels the thing with Seven is there's good stuff on the show, but it doesn't feel like a lot of it matters. Like Rocker's Haku Barbarian's a good opener, but it doesn't really feel like it really means anything. Hearts Nasties is good, but again, the Nasties aren't. And we'll, we'll come to all this later in depth. But Broad Broad Strokes is a show, with the exception of Savage and Warrior. It's kind of hard. To judge it because one of the things that actually matters is a massive skid mark on the company that you can't really ignore. Yeah, and that, and that's, it's fair to judge a show like that. Yeah. That is, I mean, when you think of WrestleMania 7, the first two things you always think of again are the terrible angle of slaughter and the fact that they had to change buildings. But yeah, yeah you're right. It, it, when WrestleMania 5 and 6, that's why I think it's very fair to compare WrestleMania 7 to those because both of them, or all three of them, I should say, are like 14 match cards. Yeah. With, a lot of randomness on the undercard. Well, five and six, the undercards absolutely blow. Yeah, they just think. You know, I mean, they're real bad. And again, like WrestleMania seven, a lot of those undercard matches didn't have, you know, any sort of long lasting effect on the promotion, right? You know, some of them have no builds at all. Yeah. But the difference is five and six, people remember those main events fondly for the most part. WrestleMania 7 actually has fun stuff on the undercard. Uh, obviously, Warrior Savage being the uh, high point and a bad main event. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, is, it, in terms of, a, you know, watching three hours, I'd actually prefer to watch WrestleMania 7 than 5 and 6 today. I think I'd agree. I think I'd agree. So, six, 6 is just, oh, it's dish war. Oh, but I, I can't remember when I realized how much I didn't like WrestleMania 6. It was like <laughs> 10 years ago, 50 years ago. I remember I just watched it. And I was like, this show is really bad. <laughs> like, the undercard is just so bad. It's just like you're <laughs> waiting two and a half hours for Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior to come save the day. We, again, we talked about that. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, a, that's a just horrible undercard. So, okay, one final time here. I want to talk about what they could have done. Here we go. And I'm ready for this. So you, you do not know this, okay? All right. We said... 
a while back here on the show that the simple answer is just to have Warrior retain against uh, Sergeant Slaughter at the Rumble. Let's say they do that. Let's say the people talk Vincent, and we know from what Meltzer's reporting, people were talk, trying to talk Vincent to doing that. Okay? Hey, Vince, we can't go forward with Slaughter. Um, you know, let's just have Warrior retain and figure it out. Okay, let's say they do that. All right, and the Warrior is the WWF champion coming out of the Royal Rumble. What do you do from there? So, again, I think we talked about this a lot in Part 3 of 1990. Everyone's going to say, well, you do the Warrior-Hogan rematch. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the most logical thing people jump to. Uh, you're going to have to turn the Warrior heel for that, first of all. Yeah. Because we know they were very – they internally thought baby first, first baby face – did it work? And there's a lot of evidence besides Hogan Warrior that Babyface versus Babyface doesn't work. Right? I mean, Babyface... Historically you know, speaking, yeah. Yeah. Right? Sean and stuff like that. There's, you know, Babyface versus Babyface. We talked about thing. it. Yeah, we talked about it, didn't we? The, the San Martino Morales example was was a massive disappointment. Like, historically speaking, it's it's rarely been a success. Okay. So let's just say we go with the easy option. Warrior turns heel and he loses the title to Hogan. Okay, I guess you could have done an angle on the main event to set that up. Yep. Okay. Randy Savage is leaving after WrestleMania Seven, isn't he, Leo? He is indeed. We we know. I mean, it's very. We know Savage wanted to start a family with Liz. Correct. Yeah. So you're losing Randy Savage as an active performer after WrestleMania Seven. If you job the Warrior as a heel at WrestleMania Seven, on top of that. I guess you could keep that program going like they did with Hogan Sarge this summer, but at some point you have then sort of just, you, you, I mean, Savage is coming back, obviously, but you're basically, you know, you're losing Savage and you're really downgrading Warrior. What else do you have? Like, I think you have to be, there's some real caution. And Bruce Pritchard's been gone on the record and said Vince McMahon never concerned, considered turning Ultimate Warrior heel anyway. Hmm. So, which is, which I thought was interesting. So that that was never even on the table to do Warrior as a heel versus Hogan, I guess. But I think the reason that people just gravitate towards that Warrior as a heel losing to Hogan is Warrior leaves anyway. Spoiler alert, we'll get to a lot of that probably in part three of this 1991 series. But you don't know he's leaving in February and March. So I don't think this Warrior-Hogan idea is necessarily as cut and dry as some people think. I'd agree. Okay, it's an option. I think it's the one most people gravitate towards, but I I think there's other things. And, again, I've read ahead, obviously, and I'm fascinated, and I'm sure it's what, you know, kind of led their decision-making with Hogan and Warrior about those two continuing on as this 1A, 1B babyface. Yeah. Okay, we know, we talked about a lot in 1990, it wasn't that great. But you know what? Is like hard for me to look past when I analyze Hogan and Warrior as this 1A, 1B babyface tandem. Is how Vince McMahon would kill for that in two. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, I get it that like we all said it was shitty and it didn't work in 1990 and 91. But dude, like you look at it compared to today, are you freaking kidding me? Vince McMahon (laughs) would murder somebody to have Hogan and Warrior as like the Raw and SmackDown champions. Oh my God. I think that's what he wanted. He wanted, because they're doing two house tours, he wanted Hogan on top, he wanted Warrior on top of one. And if you combine them, what the hell else do you have underneath? Yeah. That's an issue. Now, what I'm going to present has some other issues. 
But let's look at other options. Warriors the champion, okay, coming out of Rumble. We've established yeah. that. What if you make Warrior Savage the title program at that's, WrestleMania 7? That's my gut feeling, the title versus career. Yes, title versus career. You have Savage win the Rumble. Yep. Heat it up. Uh, now, how are you going to get Hogan out? Maybe a friend turns on him. They do the Hogan-Sid bit a year early. <laughs> no. So, who would Hulk Hogan then, if Slaughter's on ice, who would he work against at WrestleMania 7? That becomes the issue. If you make Warrior Savage title versus career in the main event, you've got to find something for Hulk. Oh, and that's man. what is the following noise the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Is Fred Ottman co-WrestleMania main eventer the option here? Oh, man. I know that's horrible, and I told you you would hate this, but I'm going to defend myself, and I'm going to defend myself right now. We talked about the concept of of war in sports, wins above replacement. We were talking about that with Earthquake, like how much value did Earthquake bring relative to average Hogan opponent in the SummerSlam feud, right? We debated that. Okay. Do you agree that as far as WrestleMania main eventers go, Sergeant Slaughter's war is about as negative as any? Oh, God, yeah. Okay. So if you basically replace him with anything, it's better, isn't it? It can't be lower than the lowest. Okay. So, and we talked about Hogan's friends turning on him worked, usually. Now, I'm not saying this, I mean, this is really dry and hard, but... (laughs) It's also something that, and I talked about when I fantasy book, unless if I think something's really bad and something's like really good on the horizon, I try to just say, hey, this is what kind of upsets history the least. Mm. And if you put, look, we know before they brought Slaughter in, per Pritchard, I don't know why in the hell he would lie about this, they considered putting Tugboat, a chic Tugboat, in the lead heel role for WrestleMania. Yeah, I can't believe that. That's, I can't fathom that. <laughs> I know, <laughs> never been able to fathom that. Look, they're not going to make him sheet turn, but what if they just have him turn and just become Typhoon and he jobs the Hogan? And you just get through WrestleMania and you don't have all that negative press. That's the key. All yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, put together the 1994 Super J Cup here, folks. Let's be very <laughs> clear. I'm trying to make sure the WWE does not have this unprecedented level of bad press. And if you take, just by taking Slaughter out of the equation after the Rumble, okay, uh, put and, and now this is a problem because he's agreed to do this angle, presumably based on the Mania payoff he's getting. Yes. So, to me, Vince is then going to have to, should, if Vince had a heart, he would still pay the man. Now, we <laughs> know based on how his dealings with Rick Rude the previous year, that is yeah, not exactly. likely. Yeah, based on the fact that he still hyped Rick Rude and didn't pay him, despite even though Rick didn't work, um, you know, shady to say the least. So he's probably not, but, um, and the other issue is Hulk's not getting the title back, which is going to be a problem for him. Yeah. But I just think, honestly, if you get, if you just take Sergeant Slaughter of the equation and just do anything else, you're better. Even heel tugboat. Wow, that's quite the statement. You know, it's funny because I don't like, you know, I've seen discussions about this before. I don't like the idea of rushing Undertaker into that position. No, with I, I was going to bring that either. up. That, that's, yeah, yes. I don't like that. I, I, I don't like rushing Taker. When you're looking at the guys who you could turn, 
who, you know, it's a pretty slim pickings. You got like Duggan, who was kind of exhausted anyway. Tugboat. Jake, obviously, had, was, was about to turn heel later in the year. This, there really isn't a lot else. And if the, if the idea is, okay, how can we just give Hogan an opponent that he can beat, that we can hopefully get some heat on, maybe that's a safe option. You know, and maybe, and maybe that's what you need right now. Yeah, I mean, and they have been linked. You know, I mean, if you do Duggan, okay, it, it, maybe it's like the same. Oh, my God, I can't believe Duggan would do this. But it's like the, Hulk and Duggan didn't have the ties. I mean, Tugboat was hooked arm in arm with them. And again, yeah. I know the match is going to suck, okay? I actually watched a Hogan Typhoon match on Rampage 92. It is very bad. <laughs> it is very bad. Hulk Hogan is working the opposite of Stiff. It was basically uh, the, the Walter Dragunov match. This was the complete opposite. Okay. <laughs> this was legitimately the 180 of that match. Um, so, look, I know it's not sexy. I know people are going to make fun of me. I just think you have to look at Slaughter as a negative war person for WrestleMania, pun intended, I guess. Yeah. And he needs to be taken out of the equation. And here's the thing. You can then bring him back because Meltzer wrote about this. The focus once the war was over really died down. Even in the Mania, but before Mania, like it was like kind of just this one month stretch where WWE got that bad press and it killed WrestleMania. Yeah. But if you take that out and then you can say, hey, Sarge, I'm sorry. This isn't working. We cannot have you be the lead heel at WrestleMania. It's killing our pub. We got to put you on ice. When this thing cools down, we'll bring it back. And then you can have him come back and he can feud with Hogan or Warrior post uh, WrestleMania. And guess what? It'll be a hotter deal than what you actually did when, when you dragged it out afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that they could have done what they end up doing anyway in terms of the angle straight after WrestleMania with, with Sarge, and they could have just – it didn't have to be about what it was about. They could have done a different style of thing. Yeah, they could have just been like him looking for revenge. I mean, you know, they could have leaned into it. I'm not justified. You know, Sarge, you know – there's one guy you guys didn't get, and it's me. You know, I mean, I'm sure they would have done that, but, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, like Sarge, like, climbing out of the battlefield, I'm not dead yet, <laughs> whatever. But, you know, I, I just think that, like, people need to understand that, you know, people are like, oh, the war wasn't that long, oh, it wasn't that big deal. For one month, them choosing to do what they did killed WrestleMania. Yeah, totally. Had you literally done anything else, WrestleMania would not. I, I don't think there's a chance – Again, we talked about how there's no way they're filling 100,000 people for this show. Yeah. I don't think there's any way that this show was going to beat last year. Because wrestling, again, is just on a downward trajectory. Yeah. But I, I think you could have stopped the bleeding. Now, the bad press they get later, it's irrelevant anyway because they get more bad press as the year goes on. So it's But, like, you just don't get that bad press early on. Maybe the casuals hang on. You do a better number. Maybe you do do something close to WrestleMania 6. I don't know. Yeah, and, but, and the question that I've always had in my mind is, does – the bad press they get later is do, does it get as much bad press as it gets because it gets because this happens first this happens first and it makes them kind of an enemy of the media in terms of we can run this as a story it gets eyeballs it gets attention you know the way that the news works it's like okay so wrestling you know, wrestling scandal this is a, a juicy story and then when it happens later on it really gets hit hard and i wonder because i mean it can't <laughs> you know it can't be that shocking that wrestlers are on steroids. I mean, not to jump ahead because we're about to move into that kind of realm of, of, of where uh, things are from a bodybuilding standpoint, steroid standpoint in a second. I've always wondered that. W would the middle of 1991 been as bad from a PR standpoint had this not happened first? 
That is an excellent question. We have no idea. Or, no I, mean, I guess there's no way to answer because it happened. Like, right? Yeah. It's not like, but, but I think it's an excellent question. You're right. Because it's so easy. Um, and we see this with the media. When somebody starts fucking up, you start, you just keep jumping on them when they keep yeah. fucking up. And, you know, when the Zahorian thing goes down, and again, we're about to get into it, uh, the early stages, you know, it's like, hey, remember that wrestling, remember WWF, which just shamelessly exploited the Persian Gulf War? Well, guess what? All their wrestlers are blatantly on steroids too. Just like you yes. suspected. Like, yeah. so. Yeah, that's it. WrestleMania 7, it's got a tainted legacy. The show is a wrestling show. It's not as bad as you think. And I think if they'd done anything else, it would have been better, that legacy. Yeah. Even I, Tugboat. I, 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 you know what? When you, when you put it like that, it's pretty damn hard to, to disagree. Yeah. Pretty damn hard to disagree. I, I think that, uh, yeah, if, if Hogan's, I mean, and that's the other thing, too. They probably were insecure about Hogan not being in the main event. Yeah, and I mean, I guess you're going to have I guess what you do is you just get through WrestleMania, and it's like, okay, you just figure out what to do with Hogan Warrior. Eventually, you probably then turn, you will turn the Warrior, eventually. Yeah. And, again, they didn't know it at the time, but there's going to be a crazy influx of talent coming into 91. We're not going to yes, talk indeed. about that today, but in later episodes, certainly, uh, that would make Warrior then expendable. I mean, they didn't know quite yet, at least I don't think. No, not February, yet. Early March, that Sid was going to come in. No. But no. once you get Sid, it's like, okay, like if you get Sid in, and let's say you've got Warriors, a babyface champion coming out of Mania, Hogan is still a babyface, he's not the champion. But then you get Sid coming in, it's like, okay, hey, we can turn the Warrior down because we can have Sid take his place at the babyface side. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting how this kind Which of... Which is kind of what happened out. anyway. Again, yeah, exactly. I was going to say, it's very interesting because that's actually kind of the trajectory that things went on in the first place. In real time, so lot lot to that. It's 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 so hard to unpack when you look at it, just because there is it's it's pretty much hard to argue with any other solution being a negative when you compare it to such a negative thing. So I think that you may have actually swayed me <laughs> and convinced me that of all the candidates, I'm not saying Tugboat's the best candidate, but he's certainly a candidate. <laughs> You could, have, you could have tied it back to the fact that Earthquake squashed him before SummerSlam and Hogan replaced him and didn't give a shit after all that Tugboat yes! had done to try and bring him back. I mean, that would require Fred Ottman cutting a good promo, something I don't think he ever did. But... He did a bad one with the Get Well Hook campaign. That's right. Um, that's right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, yeah. Fred. I think that fact that was a tremendous promo. <laughs> I think Fred could have pulled it off. Maybe. Maybe with some that WWF storytelling from that period, he might have been able to pull it off. But uh, we're going to take a sharp right turn now, actually, with the stuff that we just mentioned when it regards to bad press and steroids. If WF thought their, uh, their woes ended with, <laughs> with WrestleMania 7 coming to an end, they were sorely mistaken. So this backtracks now. Obviously, we mentioned in 1990 the decision by Vincent Mann to launch the WBF, uh, the World Bodybuilding Federation. Questionable decision at the time, and we'll talk now. But Man's World Bodybuilding Federation had a press conference on January 30th, 1991, to announce its roster. The first contest will be taking place June 15th in Atlantic City, uh, which you said the show's on YouTube. Yes, it is. I believe it. We'll talk about it in part two. can't believe that people recorded that. Um, well, Titan basically stripped Joe Weider, who is the, uh, the, the, the head honcho in the bodybuilding world, uh, of the second-rung up-and-coming stars, particularly the huge blonde-haired White Hopes, says Dave, <laughs> Um, somebody bring somebody bring Bruce Mitchell in. <laughs> Weeder kept four of the top five finishers at the Olympia in uh, Haney, Lee Labrada, Sean Ray, and Richard Gaspari. Uh, okay. Some real household names. Uh, 
In the past, Weida has never actually paid bodybuilders' salaries, although they can earn money in contests and in marketing their own gimmicks. Uh, still, probably only the top five guys ever earn six figures. Titan was offering guaranteed contracts plus prize money uh, when the prize money goes above the guarantee. Uh, the magazine that they have launched, Bodybuilding Lifestyles, was apparently complete crap. Um, compared to other bodybuilding magazines on the stands at the time, according to The Observer, there was no mention of steroids at all, uh, which is actually a stark contrast because even bodybuilding magazines would acknowledge the existence of steroids. Not so much this one. Um, and it did not do too well at the stands at all. Apparently it was dying at the stands. Major flop within the bodybuilding world, the WBF magazine. Can't say I ever bought a copy, and I think I made this pretty clear in 1990, and I'd like to reiterate it again. Bodybuilding? Why, why would you think I would watch that? <laughs> I just, I, I think it just needs to be that simple when analyzing. Oh, you know, why would, you know, you talk about, hey, business was down. Why would you try to watch a side project? Here, how, here's a better question. Who the fuck would watch bodybuilding? <laughs> God bless you if you do, I guess. I shouldn't, you know, make fun of any of our potential listeners, but bodybuilding? No, I, I think that you're right. You're right on this one. There's no value to watching. Give us in. Bret Hart did a great rant on bodybuilding in the WBF once on it, like one of these interviews, these shoot interviews, where he's talking about like, who would watch this? <laughs> like, yeah, that's my thing. It's like, it's like, okay, the XFL was a stupid idea, but I like football. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know what I don't like? Dudes posing with very little clothes on. <laughs> And Bret Hart just talks about these guys like bodybuilders. Talk about your zeros in life. <laughs> you know, like, just ripping on the, the concept in general. Like, there's no skill. There's no talent to this. Like, it's just dudes posing like, oh, like a nice physique. But who's going to watch that? And to, let alone pay to watch it. Yeah, that's another thing, too. Yeah, like, you, like even if it, like, just happened in my backyard for free, I probably wouldn't go out and watch, <laughs> to be honest with you. Which also would be odd if random men were, like, half-naked posing <laughs> in my backyard. Let me look out there right now. Nope. Okay. No, nothing. Okay. I think, you know what? Even if it happened, I'd still close the curtains. Yes, yes. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, There's Mike Christensen. Yeah. Yeah, oh, my, my God, Liam. Gary Strydum. Just the worst <laughs> Oh, God. Meanwhile, while Vincent Mann is trying to get this bodybuilding thing kicked off, George Zahorian gets indicted in February. Do, 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 do. That's yeah. Great. Something we should note, um, I think the way we've got it planned, we will tease you at the end of part two with more Zahorian stuff, and George Zahorian will obviously be the lead story in part three. Yeah. Uh, he was found when he was indicted. Uh, he was found shredding documents in his office. Never never a great indicator of a man's innocence. No. no. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm oh, just shredding some documents. Oh, you, you, you must be not guilty. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> Nothing to see. Oh, my God. Somebody very close to the situation when it comes to the WBF said that Vince has caused a stir in the industry, but thus far played the game quite poorly uh, with the guys he's taken. While he hasn't met, uh, been met with great success, he's changed the industry in that he's forced the weeders to give guaranteed incomes to the top guys. Very funny when we're going through the uh, kind of the history of payment in the bodybuilding world there. Certainly sounds like the independent contractors of the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah, and I wonder how the independent contractors of the World Wrestling Federation felt about those bodybuilders getting that guaranteed money. Not that fucking great, I'm pretty sure. But hey, at least they got an opportunity. You know, at least all the, <laughs> at least all the sports entertainers got that quote unquote opportunity. Unbelievable. They did. They did. Yeah. Then Vince they was kind of the, It's funny that Vince is doing 
you know, kind of like what he would pseudo complain about Ted Turner doing in the wrestling business, you know, like causing him to up his, um, you know, or change his financial, the way he, oh, the way yeah. he pays the independent contractors, the financial structure. Predatory business practices, right, Ted Turner? <laughs> oh boy, I can't, I can't wait for that Vince movie. Oh my god, that's gonna be special. I mean, yeah, it's, just, it's one of those things you know you're gonna hate. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not counting on Bill Simmons to be Dave Meltzer. No, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wait for that. Um, moving away from the steroids talk, obviously the, the Zorro and stuff, as you said, we're gonna get into deeper further down the line in 1991. Yes, just file now, that name away for now. We are going to talk about Dr. George Zahorian a lot in yeah. his Don't, don't shred it. Don't shred it. Don't, Keep it in the shred that note. No. No. Uh, in a section titled Coming and Going, the guys in the first three months of the year who were in and out of the company, Conan, John Nord, and Chris Chavis, uh, who wrestled one night as Lord Humongous, apparently, and another night in an Indian getup called War Eagle, all had tryouts at one of the tapings uh, early in the year. Conan is expected to be brought in and pushed in time for WrestleMania because the company believes it needs a Latin star to sell WrestleMania tickets. Uh, this ah, is obviously yeah. the very start of the year. That elusive Latin star that they constantly need. God bless <laughs> Rey Mysterio for at least being able to fill that bud. What a motley crew this is. Conan, John Nord, and Chris Chavez. Of course, you know Chris Chavez is Tatanka. Indeed. Said to have potential, but very Indian, green. By the way, we should, we should mention Indian get-up is, is Dave's term in 1991. We, we, yes, we know. not ours. <laughs> yes, we, we, we know they are Native Americans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the taping... Uh, this, this is the following week, I believe. The WWF gave Charlie Norris a tryout in the new Indian role. There it is again. Calling him Johnny Greyfeather. Uh, <laughs> must not have been a major success, because Titan is now planning on bringing Steve Gatorwolf in for a tryout in the Indian role. Yes, Steve Gatorwolf, who was squashed by King Kong Bundy on a Saturday Night's Main Event 1986. Fucking Charlie Norris? <laughs> that guy sucks ass. See, I mean, what was that pay-per-view match he had in WCW? I think it was full like Super Brawl, Bowl. Full Brawl 93 with Big Sky. <laughs> That's right. Doesn't I he, remember it vividly. Doesn't he have another one against, like, the Equalizer or something at a Super a, Brawl? Maybe they do a tag or something like that at one of the Battle Bowls or something like that, maybe. He, he's very bad, and he's so is Steve Gatorwolf, and Johnny Greyfeather is a really shitty name, by the way. <laughs> I, I would love if Johnny Gargano just, just to see if anyone noticed, you know, maybe, maybe Johnny listens to this podcast. I'd love him to come out as Johnny Greyfeather one week on NXT. <laughs> just to see if anyone's paying attention anymore. Yeah, just, I don't know, just see if it, see if it sticks. Johnny Greyfeather. Imagine, I mean, make Saba Simba look like Hulk Hogan. <laughs> uh, another, another, uh, coup here for the WWF. Mike Rotunda will be coming in after his New Japan tour ends in March. And his brown tights made Shawn Michaels at Survivor Series 02 blush. <laughs> the initial brown tights. That, oh, that God. Fucking. The thing is with, like, Irwin and those, for those who haven't seen this, just imagine IRS on the top half and Mankind on the bottom half. That's how it looks. Yes, that was the initial look. And it is, that is a great way to put it. It is shitty. Uh, yeah. Take it from us. Uh, yes, from Michael Wall Street to IRS. We go. So they basically just kind of, um, I don't know. They, it's kind of a similar type gimmick. He was, you know, Michael, the computerized man 
of the 90s. He was the original one in WCW. That was a really bad angle. Like, they, they were like, oh, computers. Oh, you're, you think you're so fancy. He was like, he was a heel because he, he liked computers. Yeah, this is like how the South looks at technology at the time. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I was trying to think of a way to put it. You totally put it, yes. Oh, hey. Yeah. You, you know what will you know piss off our fan base? A guy using computers. And it wasn't even really a computer. Like, cause they, you know, it wasn't a laptop that Alexandria York would bring the ring. It was like a... I don't know, like a shitty word processor or something like that. Um, Mike Rotunda. IRS sucks. <laughs> I just don't know what I was saying. IRS is one of the all-time dirt worst gimmicks that is not, I think, ripped enough. It, it's yeah. really bad. He made Teddy Biasi boring in a tag team. Yes. Yes. Thank you. But I, I mean, this was, I mean, I, I hate IRS. I, I hate, there's no good IRS matches. Uh, they're all boring. Was, you know, we talked about Steamboat coming back, uh, at the, in part three of our 1990 series, and he does, obviously. This is like, the, and, and Jacques Rougeau would come back as the Mountie, but in Steamboat and Rougeau's instance, there was at least initially a nod to the fact they'd been in the promotion before. Like with the Mountie, yeah. they're like, oh yeah, like he's been gone for a while and he's become a Mountie. They actually say that on the television. Yeah. Was this the first time, because I don't remember them acknowledging his past as a WF Tag Team Champion at all here. Was this no, the first time either. it happened where, you know, maybe they wanted to do a Tony Atlas, but Roddy Piper blew the lid <laughs> off that. <laughs> but it was there another time before this where somebody had returned to the promotion and they did not acknowledge that first run at all? I don't think so. Wyndham, they acknowledge as Barry Wyndham, the Widowmaker. Yeah, um, but you know, I, you know what's funny, though? I don't think they talked about him having been in the promotion before. No, I didn't they did either. Wyndham and Rotunda, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that's why, that's why I went there. My, my brain went straight to him. I can't think of anybody else. Yeah, I mean, I guess, well, you know, at least had been there, we should say this, since Vince had went national. Obviously, yeah, a lot yeah. of guys had come in, you know, had a run and left you know, when his dad was running the company, and that, that wasn't acknowledged at all, Hogan included. Yeah. But, um, yeah, this was, I, I, I fucking hate IRS, man. IRS and his fucking abdominal stretch that never ends. Yes. I, I just think, yeah, when I think of an IRS match, I just think of an abdominal stretch and being very bored. <laughs> Plus, I always had to put up every time I watched tapes from the early 90s, and IRS would come on, fucking family member saying, who's the referee wrestling? Oh, yeah. That's, oh, boy. Yeah. Thanks, oh. thanks. Good stuff. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, so we have, an- we have another great return here. Bruce Beefcake returns during this period wearing a mask and a costume that would have never gotten over in today's society, or in any society, really, uh, to attack Rick Martel in the middle of February. Uh, later in the month, he also attacks Earthquake and Dino Bravo. Keeps running in on the Earthquake matches, is, is a pattern. At one point, he knocks him out with a headbutt, which they make kind of a big deal out of. Yeah, and he keeps attacking Earthquake, but uh, this was the Mariner. I don't think he was ever referred to on TV as the Mariner, was he? I don't think so. I didn't. I, when I was watching him, I didn't even give him a name okay. at all. Just, Who is that masked man? But I th- the plan was for Beefcake to be this masked, mysterious man. You know, the mask because of, of the facial reconstruction surgery we talked mm-hmm. about that, that took him out in the summer of 90. Very real situation. You know, we discussed that in part two. Uh, you know, the real rough deal for, for yeah, Brother Bruno, quite frankly. I mean, it sucks. Um it's very rare to see an angle just get dropped like this in this era. 
We talked about that, right? Like, even if it's, like, on the lower level, because this just goes nowhere, and I presume injury concerns were too high with Beefcake to make an actual return to the ring, um, seeing as it didn't happen for two more years. There were probably opponents worried they didn't want to, like, hit him wrong and be the guy who re-shattered his face. Uh, I know there were some untelevised attacks as well, so they showed uh, one on Demolition, another one on Power and Glory. So, yeah, that's who that is. It's very obvious it's Brutus Beefcake, one you know, because he does, like, like that weird chop to the traps that Beefcake always did. So that makes it very obvious, but, uh, yeah, if you're wondering ever who is this random mass person running in on matches for four weeks being in 1991, it's Brutus Beefcake. He was supposed to be the Mariner. Yeah. Uh, in retrospect, the angle where they headbutt Earthquake and knock him out, it's kind of a major sign that they're done with him. On top. With done, Quake. done with Earthquake. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a big thing with Beefcake. You're right. Um, I think we're going to talk about this later, so I'll save it. But, you know, Meltzer makes a thought, uh, has a thought like, man, there's a lot of guys who have fallen from the summer of 1990 down the card. And, and Quake is oh, definitely yeah. want to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, there, but yeah, the, nothing happens with the Mariner. It would not have gotten over. Uh, John Nord finally does get contracted and is the Viking. Later, the Berserker. Yes, after being turned down for the role of Crush and the Undertaker. <laughs> he gets the Viking get up. Not yet the Berserker. Yeah. Uh, we would later learn that is the most deadly of all Vikings, but not at first. Uh, he gets Mr. Fuji as his manager. Uh, you know, I was thinking about the Berserker, and, and I swear to God, I, you know, Random things amuse me now in wrestling with every match being the same. I would love to see a house show match with Jim Duggan and the Berserker where the first five minutes. <laughs> yes, no, I'm going to tell you why. This would be great. I'm going to sell you on this. Just like I didn't talk about thing. Where the first, five, the first five minutes was no moves. It was just Berserker going, huss, huss, and Duggan replying with the ho. Like it's just five <laughs> minutes of stalling and them doing that to each other. I, th- I can't believe that that didn't happen, actually. <laughs> well, the way the way that these write-ups read in the in the newsletters at the time, you think that's what half the house shows actually were? Yes, because like doesn't Meltzer say, well, it was three minutes before they actually locked up? I read <laughs> yeah. that quite a bit in his house show uh, recaps or, or the recaps that were sent in. Uh, I did think it was kind of cool how the Berserker would win by countout. Yeah, I like that too. It was different, uh, and he did a cool plancha once. After, like, in one of these squ- early squashes, like the guy was just laying on the ground. And he did a plancha over the ropes. I don't know, that was real cool. <laughs> I actually thought there was a little bit of potential in the Berserker. Yeah, I think the problem, though, was is he was a Viking. Yeah, the sword like, and the was, helmet. It was just, like, like a lame character, and we talked about this at the end, of, like, with the Saba Simbas of the world and, like, Battle Cat. This was, like, just, a, I remember very distinctly when he started a lame character my brother and I would make fun of watching the TV. Yeah, it's like, I want to like him. But, like, he's too stupid. He always loses. And why is he a fucking Viking? (laughs) Yeah, it's like, yeah, the the Huss, I don't know. It was, yeah, just too cartoonish. There was some potential there, but, yeah, it didn't work out. No, it wasn't going to make it. We also start seeing vignettes, as you mentioned, for the dragon, a a man shrouded in darkness. Yes, not to be confused with Ricky Steamboat. (laughs) No, don't get those two confused. Unbelievable. But this is that. this is a very sad year for Ricky Steamboat. Thankfully, it does pick up at the end. Yes, and he returns. Yes, back to WCW for that clash match we mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what a nondescript run this was. I did nothing. I mean, I don't think we're going to mention him even very much. I'd be I'd be surprised if he comes up again until the point where he leaves. Yeah. Wow. 
Mm. Yeah, pretty rough. I was really uh, mad about that as a kid. I was like, why aren't they talking about Ricky Steamboat? Intercontinental yeah. in WrestleMania 3. I remember, like, we you talked about not mentioning Rotunda's past. Like, I remember even as a kid being, like, really pissed. I'm like, why isn't he, like, the Ricky Steamboat role? Ricky Steamboat is sweet. Ricky Steamboat is, like, my favorite wrestler going into WrestleMania 3. So, yeah, yeah even as a kid, I was super pissed uh, by the portrayal of him here in 91. It's kind of weird. They brought a lot of guys in to just kind of hang... Like, Davey Boy was the same. They brought him in just to kind of stick him in the bottom and do nothing. Yeah, because remember, this was an era where it's not like today, where it's like, you know, you have some, like, half-assed attempt at an angle uh, for a pay-per-view cycle. Like, guys just kind of existed, and they, you know, won squash matches, but they didn't really do anything important. Yeah, they, 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 and they just kind of reference, you know, like, oh, he's back in the promotion. He's, you know, and there's very little, very little to kind of sink your teeth into with these guys for a long time. Um, we're going to turn our attention now to elsewhere on the card. Obviously, we've talked about the at the top of the mix. The Royal Rumble undercard deserves some attention here because you mentioned before how the undercard of this show is sensational. The Rumble is kind of the low point. But until that Rumble, this is a pretty fantastic show. Didn't Dave call it the best WWF pay-per-view ever? Or he at least did. the best WWF pay-per-view since WrestleMania 3? Yep, yep. Okay, I mean, he had really high praise for this. I think if that Rumble match itself had been good, I would be inclined to agree that it would be maybe top to bottom the best WWF pay-per-view ever. The Virgil turn, which we oh. now need to discuss, is so good, so well built. And my God, the pop when he turns on DiBiase. No. is just, like, so organic and so awesome. Like, the crowd can sense when he's down yeah. on his holding the belt that he's going to hit him, and he hits him, and that explosion is so good. The vignettes building it up were really good. You mentioned kind of how they, you know, Dusty and Dustin, because they're leaving, were such an afterthought. They, they very much transitioned uh, in the weeks leading up to the Rumble to DiBiase humiliating Virgil rather than, you know, any real heat with the Roses. Yeah, they, 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 it, was, it was a very sharp turn after the Sapphire stuff. Sapphire kind of vanishes into thin air, with, and, and from that point, Virgil seems to get the... <laughs> you're probably thinking the same thing I was. Virgil just kind of all of a sudden, they're focusing on his face as DBS is talking about the power of his money and stuff like that. It's, it, it's, a, it's a sharp turn, but it's a good one. This felt like something that was, it was always going to happen, and just that scene after the match when... DiBiase is just verbally berating Virgil, and like a fan throws like a drink at DiBiase and nails him. Oh yeah, I mean that was yeah. a hell of a shot. I mean, oh yeah. What was I'm trying to think? There's somebody got Scott Hall really good once. Yeah. WCW, <laughs> and I think those are like the two best instances of a wrestler getting just binged by a water bottle. But yeah, they, and the crowd pops too. That's how you know DiBiase is doing his job. He gets hit by the water bottle, and the crowd pops hard for it. <laughs> I also love what he's like, need I remind you about your mother to Virgil? And Gorilla oh. goes, oh, now give me a break. <laughs> it really excels it. Um, something else that's really cool, and WF should note this for modern booking. What, it made me think of something. So the Rhodeses, right, these baby faces, yeah. they get turfed out. Okay. Time. So let's say you actually still like Dusty and Dustin Rhodes. It's, I can't remember if I was still on there, you know, still kind of pulling for them or had any emotional attachment to them during this period. I, I just can't remember. But if you're someone who cheers for the baby faces, okay, and they get turfed out like that, well, that's kind of a bummer, right? But what does WWF do for its audience to counteract it? They inject this angle immediately after. So they want you to forget about the Rhodeses for obvious reason, and they do a wonderful job of getting you to forget about them. 
Oh yeah, it's, that's it's, something it's you done do real not well. See enough. Like now, it's just like, oh, let's just have the baby face get beat down for an extra ten minutes to draw heat. Mm. This is a really. I think the way this was done, again, absolute perfection with the Virgil turn, and uh, that pop justifies it. Tells the story. Absolutely, and Piper again, uh, a highlight during this this scene where he's just screaming, "What are you going to eat it all your life?" Oh yes, that is such a great line. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's good. They, they go on and feud rockers and Orients. Yeah, oh, that's a banger. The, the new Orient Express, which is uh, you know, Kato is of course Japanese for Paul Diamond, uh, as we know. <laughs> uh, it's the uh, so it's the rockers' old AWA rivals, Bad Company, Pat Tanaka, yeah. and Paul Diamond, and so not a surprise that the match is good, but um, it's probably the best WWF tag team match of its era on TV pay per view. Yeah, ninety one isn't a strong year for tag stuff. Uh, for the WWF, so this is to me easily the, the the highlight. Yeah, I'm trying to think like what are the best regarded WWF tag matches of all time from this era. You can even go back a couple of years if you want. Hearts demos from SummerSlam '90 probably gets some love. Okay, like, in terms of like TV, you're talking, but like I'm talking about the house. Is like, like is that Rockers Rougeau's? Oh um, yeah, matches. Yeah, it's a series. The, the first time you're up in '89, I think those are regarded. Pretty strong, but like you know, Hearts Bulldogs. People point; they never really had like a great banger of a match mm. that you, everyone points to. I mean, people love those teams, but there's no like one banger of a match that is even close to as good as this Rockers Orient Express matches. So I think it's fair to call it the best WF Tag Team match uh, up to that point on, on TV in pay per view. Um, you know, the like the original Orient Express, the new Orient Express quickly becomes a jobber team, which uh, yeah. is very. Yeah, they lose to the Hearts and LOD on TV, like, not long after the Rumble. Uh, one thing I love about uh, Dave's recap of the Rumble is how Coco Beware versus the Mountie was sent out there to quell any potential for a riot after the title change. Yeah. I, <laughs> Imagine that. I, like, it's... <laughs> that would make me want a riot having to that <laughs> match, to be honest with you. I, it's funny because like that's actually something that, like we have a magazine or we did have a magazine called Power Slam that was like the closest thing we had to like an insider deal here in England that we could read on a regular basis before the internet and that was always the line they said that that was the purpose of this match I'm guessing they just got that from the Observer but it's funny because this match was not on the tape release of the show in this country I'm not sure if it was in America either it was not no so I actually didn't even know this match happened until like years later yeah, it, and it is on the network version, though. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, it's... I have more on Coco in a minute here, actually. A random tidbit on Coco I'll get to at the <laughs> very tail end of the show. But uh, yeah, Coco Beware Mountie, the riot prevention match on Royal Rumble 1991. Yes, they acknowledge Jacques Rougeau. Now he's just a Mountie. So he, he took, yeah, hey. <laughs> what else are you going to do in your time off between WF? You become a Canadian policeman. Of course. Natural segue. Uh, we have a fucking terrible angle on Brother Love. Brother Love show still going on at this point. Uh, this is the TV. We're, we're now done, we're done yes, talking about the yes, Bumble yes. pay-per-view. We're, we're going to talk about undercard stuff on WWE television uh, leading up to WrestleMania 7. Yeah, absolutely. And Brother Love hits what I can only consider, for a show that I hated, a real low point. Uh, a blind wheelchair bound man gets his sight back and walks this this angle is just awful and the first thing the guy does when he when he can stand up is walk off the show and i don't blame him so this was atrocious i saw this in your notes i'm like okay how bad is this gonna be and i watched him like oh my god like if this happened today 
can you imagine the number of podcasts just railing <laughs> against this angle? Like, what were they thinking? I mean, this would be the lead of, like, you know, I mean, Brian Alvarez. Can you just imagine him having oh. to do a show on this angle? Uh, I think it only aired on primetime, which doesn't make it any better, for the record. <laughs> uh, I don't think it was actually the weekend television. I think it was just done for – because Sean Mooney and I think Lord Alfred Hayes were the commentators for it, yeah. which threw me off. And so I looked it up, and I, I think it only aired on primetime. But, yeah, like – Brother Love, like, you know, the gimmick was always that he was, like, this fall preacher, and they, like, really leaned heavy into it with, like, some Jimmy Swagger-type shit here, trying to, you know, like, claiming he, he made a man see and walk again. We also got a Terry Garvin <laughs> appearance. Terry Garvin oh. was the guy who wheeled the, uh, quote-unquote, blind man down. And I was going to say, I hope he wasn't setting up the ring. Brother Terrence. As he's, he's Brother like, Terrence. Yes. Uh, I Good wonder God. who blind paraplegic guy was. Uh, isn't his name just John or something like that? Or I can't yeah, remember. generic as can be. I, actually, it was, it was, I can't remember his name. I, I thought I read it down. I didn't write whatever his name But who was he, I wonder? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he was a shoot, so I'm guessing it was probably, probably no, a No, I don't shatter. think it was a oh, Wait, you're telling me he wasn't really cured? No. <laughs> Thankfully, this is pretty much the end, because not long after this, the Brother Love show and character is done. Thank God. Um, the story is that Bruce Pritchard will be concentrating on his front office duties... Not for long. (laughs) And they do a Brother Love segment with The Undertaker's contract being sold to a new manager called Paul Bearer, which is Percy Pringle, who plays a mortician with jet black hair. Okay, so back in another lifetime, another podcast I did, uh, got a chance to interview uh, Percy Pringle. And I asked him, what did you think of this gimmick when it was presented to you? And he could not state enough how much he hated the idea. Wow. He was like, oh, my God, that sounds awful. And it really does. Kind of like The Undertaker on paper sounds really cheesy and really bad. Like, so, like, and, and Brother Love makes the name Paul Bearer, which is obviously a play on words, just makes it all seem like a bad joke on that interview segment. He's like, Paul Bearer. He, like, says it this way, like, get it? Like, wink, wink, nudge, uh. nudge. Um, I remember my dad, though, thought the name Paul Bearer was, like, really funny. He's like, oh my god, they're called Paul Barry, like, like my dad who hates wrestling, like, thought that was like the funniest thing, which is not funny at all, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, he's like, oh my god, like, my dad, who, like, who never thought, like, anything in wrestling was entertaining, thought the name Paul Bearer was, like, this great, like, play on words. <laughs> Similarly, oddly enough, he was my dad's favorite character, too. Wow, uh, he appeals to dads, Paul Bearer. He does. I, I, so, I talked about, um, I think it was, like, when we discussed Kerry Von Erich. How I actually knew of him from a different promotion. This was the mm. time period where I knew uh, people um, had worked elsewhere. I was like, I recognized. Him. I was like, Hey, wait a minute! This guy used to wrestle, you know, on uh, for that promotion. I re- I remember recognizing Percy Pringle because I again watched. I'd watched a lot of World Class. That was the promotion I watched second most yeah. um, because of its slot on ESPN. Now I. Don't know if you found this, but Meltzer writes, there's a difference between doing away with a character and personal humiliation. And if you saw the brother love burial, you'd know the difference. Uh, I couldn't find this. This is when Warrior just kicks his ass, apparently. But I haven't, I've not seen this. No, I couldn't get it either. So, but I remember it. Yeah, he like just drags him to the ring and, and press slams him and, and beats his ass. I, I didn't remember. I mean, I've seen it before. I did not remember it being like you know a complete humiliation i mean it was just like a way to write the character off television so you've got to go a little over the top because brother love they'd gotten physical with him before i remember like robert's ddt'd him 
Mm-hmm. So yeah. I guess you had to go a little over the top with it. But, yeah, so, I mean, it, obviously, they write them off TV. The show had been on for almost three years as an interview segment on Superstars. Uh, and, and it comes to an end. And, and Bruce Pritchard, uh, again, like we joked, uh, he doesn't concentrate on his front office duties uh, for too much longer because he is uh, no longer employed in the front office a few months after this. Yes, he's rather swiftly turfed out, which we'll get to. Um, I did note that in watching the TV after the Rumble, there was a really good DiBiase promo after the Virgil turn, where he's again kind of, he's just got the, you know, the, the typical DiBiase sweaty face, uh, and just talking about how Virgil is a lowlife, and that when he's finished with Virgil and Roddy Piper, they'll find you in the gutter. And the way he says it, and the way that it just fades to black, it's like, that's pretty chilling. Like, that's really dark. But uh, it was really good stuff. I was, this, I was very impressed with how well this feud was done after the turn. Yeah, uh, not just the build, but they keep it going. So, man, I mean, this was probably, as a kid, one of the matches I was looking forward to the most on the card. See, because it was Virgil's first time wrestling. It felt novel. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not, like, going to say that, like, Virgil's the bee's knees or anything, and it's some great worker, but at the time... Um, I was kind of psyched for it. It's a really well-done feud. Now, it was reported in Pro Wrestling Illustrated Weekly, the week of WrestleMania, that Sensational Sherry will wind up with Ted DiBiase, which basically gives away the result of the match, Warrior and Savage, that everybody knew the result of to begin with, uh, says Meltzer here. So this is kind of an interesting uh, move. Yeah, well, you know, we would get that a lot this year in the magazine, sometimes spoiling finishes of WrestleMania. I think WWF yeah. magazine itself spoiled the finish of WrestleMania 4, if I can remember correctly. <laughs> uh, so, D.B. Ossie is kind of Sherry's forgotten pairing between Savage and Shaw, but they were good together. And D.B. Ossie had a really strong 1991. Can't state that enough. Yeah, and, and, and which is why it's such a sharp detour when IRS gets his grubby hands on him uh, yeah. the following a, year. Yeah. Money, Inc.? <laughs> they have a shitty name when you think about it. Too. No. Like not only do they have boring matches, but like Money Inc. is like a really crappy name. Yeah, there's nothing there. Uh, this is a good transition though, to establish Sherry's kind of a gold digger anyway. But I actually kind of want to throw this to you. Anybody else that could have benefited from getting Sherry instead of DiBiase? Ooh, uh, in 1991. So what? Yeah, this point. Because they're not going to put her with, like, a lower-level person. So what kind of heels... Like a Martel. Yeah, but Martel leaves. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you're right. Martel would have been the only other candidate, probably, when you're looking at it. And he leaves. So, yeah, I think it makes sense. Yeah. Good move here. And it does it does need to another great Bobby Heenan call at the, the 92 Rumble when they come out together. Yes, that's true. Yes, that's very true. But um, I, I, I was trying to think even more about this thing with, with Sherry. And who she could have been with. Yeah, I think those are it. Yeah, look at them. <laughs> <laughs> and that just hit me. You threw that to me. I was like, wait, what are you? Oh, yeah, look at them. Yes. <laughs> uh, that is incredible. Look at them. If you know, if you don't know what we're talking about, watch Teddy Diossi getting introduced at, Russell, at the 92 Rumble. And you'll, it'll be very obvious why Bobby Heenan said, look at them. Um, yeah, I think Diossi was a logical <laughs> answer. Especially because he had just lost Virgil, so DiBiase always kind of had someone in his corner, so it was logical uh, for a different, you know, somebody much different. So it, it worked well. It really did. They hold a tag team battle royal with every WWF team except the Hart Foundation on television, with the winner getting the title shot against the Foundation uh, at Mania. Uh, the entire match goes six minutes, ending with LOD and the Nasty Boys, uh, and Hawk is cost the match by power and glory. The Nasties win... The shot, and ugh, 
<laughs> so, okay. I, and I think, now let's be fair, because I think we've talked about this already off air. I kind of liked this Battle Royal as a kid because oh, I've yeah. never seen a tag team Battle Royal before. I know there had been one at MSG in 86, but I didn't see that until years later and had not seen it at this point. So um, I remember being, like, really fired up the idea that, oh, when your partner's thrown out, you go out. It, it seemed novel. Uh, in retrospect, it's pretty bad in a pretty lazy way to determine a number one contender. Um, kind of spoke of the status of the tag team division, which we went deep into in part three of the 1990 series. Uh, but yeah, that, we, we get with the nasty boys and challenging the hearts and LOD power and glory uh, becomes a little mini feud for WrestleMania, which ends in a squash and power and glory sadly is really just said done. Yeah, they're done. Although they, they hang on for a little bit while longer. Uh, yeah. Any, any real uh, anything you could have got out of them is, is gone. Yeah, I think Roma gets like a staph infection the week of Mania. He's got that massive elbow pad on, so they have to do the match in like oh, basically is that 10 why? seconds. Okay, yeah, well, yeah. That, that I thought, I always thought they were just running long, uh, long on time or something like that. They just, okay, so that makes sense too. Either way, it makes sense. Why? Because it, it's what, a minute, the match? It's like they a drop? minute longer when they, they do the doomsday device on Roma and like he lands really weird. He's like trying to twist the weight so that his arm does, his elbow doesn't hit the, hit the mat. Um, so yeah, he's, he's in a pretty bad way at that show. Why but, not just do it to Hercules? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I was actually a huge Battle Royal mark as well as a kid. So I actually thought this, you know, stuff like this was pretty cool because it didn't happen all the time. So it was a kind of novel, like you say. Yeah, it is. Ex- we'll, pro- we'll probably talk about it more in part two, but like it just felt the WF Tag Division, it was just biding the time till the LOD got it. Like they, the hearts yeah. had to lose it to somebody. So the LOD could win it because they weren't going to do hearts versus LOD, which maybe could have been interesting. But again, that's babyface versus babyface, something they didn't want to do. Yeah. Uh, and it is expected that the foundation will be broken up as a team after WrestleMania. So that was in the works. Yeah. And it happens, obviously. And Brett goes on to greener pastures. Although it doesn't happen right away. They're again, at least initially, like when you look at house show results, it seems they're doing that toe in the water shit with Brett again. It's like, eh, mm-hmm. are we gonna let him run single or not? And then they obviously do, and it's for the best. And, and Brett goes on to have a such a tremendous career. Uh, the Nasty Boys tag title went at WrestleMania. You referenced it earlier. Zero reaction when they go over. I mean, I don't know if you rewatched the match or, or <sighs> finish for this. You can like hear a pin drop when they win. Like the crowd's into the match. And then it's kind of like, oh, my God, the Nasty Boys are the tag team champions? They, they were just always such a better WCW tag team. They, they did not get over here. No, I'm, I, I've, I've, I've never been a fan of the Nasty Boys anyway. And I was very – this was a, a real jarring reaction for me at the time when it happened. It was, again, along the lines of what you said, the Nasty Boys? Like, they <laughs> beat the hearts? Like, these fucking – these fucking losers? <laughs> like, I, don't know. I, I remember, like, it. not thinking it was going to happen. And stuff like I remember being pretty shocked at the time. I was like, yeah, because like the, the nasty boys were not really presented. I mean, the way they win the battle royal, you know, the, is like by cheating. They were not presented, you know, as like demolition was in 1988. Yeah, nah. <laughs> or even the brainbusters in '89. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, again, it treated like they were lucky to even get the shot in the battle royal anyway. Um, on television. There was a LOD demolition match with LOD soundly winning. Demolition now pretty much firmly on the job squad. Um, Gorilla Monsoon says that Tugboat versus Undertaker is signed for WrestleMania 7. Uh, that's not on my uh, format sheet, Tony. <laughs> so, no, yeah. Your, your, your boy, the Superfly, gets that spot. 
Yeah. All right, I want to talk about that. There is a, I think Undertaker and Tugboat did work on a dark match. Maybe Gorilla was just confused at that point. He had just, maybe mm. he is a marathon taping and he had, had seen it and he misspoke. But, um, I want to say a word on, yeah, who Undertaker does work at Mania 7, Jimmy Snook on how it kind of relates to modern, a way to relate it to modern WWE booking, which we, we do at times here. I think it's a fun thing to look at. Um, I would love to see the Undertaker today lay down like Jimmy Snooker did for him at WrestleMania 7. Love it. Oh, uh, and, and if you disagree with me, I think you're wrong. Plain and simple. Fight me. <laughs> Fucking coming back for the 30th annual, the, the, the 30 year deal again for Survivor Series. You knew they were going to milk it. It would, and it would probably be cool if they ever already haven't milked so many like, you know, Undertaker last dances already. Uh. Um, look, no one in 2020 WWE is as terrible as Jimmy Snuka was in 1991. <laughs> like, no one is. Even, I don't care who your least favorite wrestler in the promotion is today. He is definitely better than Jimmy Snuka in 1991. Jimmy Snuka in 1991 was dog shit. He was <laughs> But, let's be fair, Liam, there's very few people in 2020 WWE that were ever as big a stars as Snuka was at his height. That's true. You know, I mean, Jimmy Snuka was like all the rage seven years earlier. Um, and I thought, like, him just getting squashed like he did at The Undertaker, by, by The Undertaker at Space 7, was, like, the way it was presented was so great. It was just, like, The Undertaker should be taken for real now. Because, like, Bobby yeah. Heenan even says, that's Superfly Jimmy Snooker. He just beat, he beat him like he was nothing. And yeah. that's, and, you know, I know people want matches to go long now, and, you know, we want to protect the losers too much. That match is a, a, a style of booking that is so missed today, where one guy who is ascendant dominates a guy who's descendant and it and it shines a light on him and makes him look better for the future. We yeah, do, we that's... we just don't see that enough in in modern wrestling. I really love just how soundly that win was presented at WrestleMania. I love yeah. it. And it's something I would love to see more of today. Rather than I... you know, insert loser whatever loser the match is. <laughs> oh, well he's really showed a good effort. I'm sure he'll be back next week. <laughs> that works sometimes, but it, you know, sometimes you gotta lay on your back and look at the lights, man. That's it. That's it. And that's one thing I will say about WWF during this period of time. For all the faults they have, the structural hierarchy, I suppose, of the roster made it very easy to elevate guys uh, and get people to try and t- at least try to get people to take them seriously. Um, you know, you don't have everybody winning and losing all the time, and that's why something like this. You know, I mean, Snooker had been you know, Snooker had been beaten before. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, I mean he, he was been kind back of for just... two years, but yeah, but he had not been beaten like definitively. Remember, because they didn't beat baby faces definitively no. until they were completely done with them. But yeah. you know, this was a big deal. And getting back to something you said earlier, and, and I think we had talked about it in the '90s series as well. Undertaker squashing Jimmy Snook at WrestleMania Seven is much better for him than getting the spot opposite Hogan and losing. It just oh, is. for sure, for sure. Especially because <laughs> there's no streak. That's, In the that's Hogan scenario. Thing. Yeah. He'd start 0-1. <laughs> so basically, like, if it was, like, a new guy today. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's wh- that's why I think people say it, because they're so conditioned to the modern booking. Oh, well, you've got to get the best possible opponent in there. Yeah. That's not always the case, folks. No, not at all. Uh, and <laughs> now, here's <laughs> something to sound off on. Greg Valentine turns babyface, allegedly, on Jimmy Hart after getting accidentally hit with a guitar at MSG. Um, Earthquake is after him, apparently, for, for the match at WrestleMania, despite the constant bullying he's received by, by Beefcake. So, this Valentine turn, I think we talked about it a little bit again uh, before, was very convoluted. 
The turn actually happens in late MSG or late 90 in MSG against Saba Simba. What a freaking match that had to be. I'm glad we only caught the ending of that on television. Uh, <laughs> but it was shelved for a bit when Honky Talk Man quits and Valentine goes to work for Herb Abrams. Yeah. Because it was, you know, Valentine was supposed to feud with Honky Talk Man, but then they're like, well, what are we going to do with them, Valentine now? Um, it's, like, really odd why he decides to turn babyface. Like, it's just, like, standard heel interference gone awry. But it's, like, played up like Valentine has just had enough of Jimmy Hart's ways. But, like, it wasn't, like, a thing they had been playing up. It's not like there had been weeks and weeks of Jimmy Hart screwing up costing Greg Valentine. It was, like, it was just one screw-up, and Valentine decided, well, I don't like you anymore. (laughs) And so the crowd just did not really react. I mean, Greg had been a big star at MSG for years, and it just did. I mean, again, you know, kind of like a Don Morocco or whomever else you want to talk about. Like, these... Twilight of their careers, babyface turns for the career heels just never work, ever. And there is a Buddy Rose squash match for Valentine on TV where he keeps, like, shooing away Jimmy Hart. That was just bad and not getting any reaction. (laughs) Like, Hart, like, it was like, it wasn't like they had shown previously the Valentine Sava Simba finish on TV. So people, I guess, kind of were aware, but, like, nobody cared, like, Jimmy Hart's, like, coming down, still trying to manage him. And Valentine's like, get away, get away. He's, like, chasing him off and then goes back to work. It's 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 very bad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's what I think on this podcast we're going to call the Bolsheviks effect, where it's like they don't give a fuck in the first place. So, you know, like, Greg Valentine, barely anybody cared about him as a heel in Rhythm and Blues. Yes, I mean, it was over. This It wasn't 1985 anymore. Uh, Greg, it, it was just over. And a few people made for a worse baby face than Greg Valentine in any year. I mean, he's just a heel. You think Greg Valentine, he's a heel. Uh, but especially in 1991, uh, I mean, there was just not a lot of reason to cheer. <laughs> he's looking like a heel. Here's one that might not make the final cut of the podcast. friend of mine who looked at a match of uh, Greg Valentine 1991 as I was preparing for this podcast, a friend of mine uh, saw the same thing that I was looking at and said, Greg Valentine during this period is a spitting image of my lesbian Aunt Sue. <laughs> Yeah, he, he, he kind of had that effect. You know, he did, he did, people said that all the time on Twitter that like, you know, he looks like, he just, he just looks like an old woman. <laughs> he just, he just looks like, an, I, I'm sorry, I love Greg Valentine, but you know, he just, he just, poor Greg. He, he, he had a really great run, uh, up like through the Garvin feud, but it was, it was, it was bad. Rhythm and Blues killed this man and, and this baby face turn was really shitty. And he gets, and he loses in very short order to Earthquake at WrestleMania, for the record. Oh, yeah. That wasn't going to help his babyface plight either, by the way, but. Yeah, um, losing your first big match after the turn, I mean, that just basically uh, pegs you at a certain spot on the card. Yeah, he goes to that mighty match with IRS at SummerSlam. (laughs) Remember when Dave started referring to Valentine as, quote, the human intermission? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Uh, the Bulldog Warlord feud. <laughs> okay, so the match at Mania, I actually like a great deal. But the Queen chipping in with her thoughts in the build. I'll tell you what, little Liam O'Rourke had to be crushed as a child <laughs> uh, to hear your Queen saying she wanted the Warlord uh, to win this match. I have a question. What is lamer, uh, this angle or the term Megxit? <laughs> Megxit. I hate those compounded words. Yes, those yes, hybrid words. And what a way to make light of like a very serious situation as well. Yeah. Too. The warlord. 
Her taste, her taste in men was never a strong suit anyway. <laughs> yes, I was, you know, hey, you know, I referenced we were going to talk about the throne. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about the shitter either here later, you know, in the show. And here it is. Yeah. And it's revealed, obviously, as if anyone believed the, the Queen of England, that Queen Elizabeth would take time out of her busy schedule to uh, chime in on a mid-card match at WrestleMania. <laughs> but if you did believe that for some reason, I think it was revealed on prime time that, you know, like Bobby Heenan was like hanging out with like some drunk woman. And that's who it was. It was just because the queen was always in the shadow, right? Yeah. Yeah. You never it it was like she was in the shadow. You never like it. They didn't sound like they showed the queen, but that was the way it was. She was in the shadow. And then they just showed him like hanging out at some table with some like drunk woman or something on primetime. And that was <laughs> how it was revealed. So, uh, Bulldog will be working an IC title program with Mr. Perfect. However, after WrestleMania says Meltzer. And that program did happen. Uh, there's an article I have about it in the WWF magazine. I'll talk about that in part two, I guess. Uh, there is a pre-mania six-fan tag, Davy Boy Smith and the Legion of Doom against the Warlord in Power and Glory, setting up, uh, you know, obviously a uh, couple of WrestleMania seven matches. Sean Mooney notes on Bulldog's Way to the Ring that he has put on, quote, 35 pounds of muscle in his time away from the WWF. So, um, <laughs> obviously, uh, Davey Boy had not gotten the George Zahorian memo yet, and neither had <laughs> Sean Moody when proclaiming that. Oh, boy. You know, so, uh, as a kid, I want to say this. I-, I was shocked Perfect did not lose the Intercontinental title at Mania to the Boss Man. Yeah, I could, especially because... They had pushed Boss Man so hard. Yeah. It, it felt like he was at his peak. It felt like it was like the kind of the, the way to blow off the feud with the Heenan family is for him to take the title. But looking back, it kind of makes sense. Bossman is one of those babyface characters who doesn't need a title, right? Like Jake Roberts always talked about, oh, I never needed a title. Yeah. Bossman kind of fits uh, that bill as well. He gets his hand raised via count-out thanks to a returning Andre the Giant. Uh, we should mention this. Was originally announced for the Rumble, but that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. I think he had some kind of an ankle. Yeah, uh, had a fall and hurt his ankle or something like that, I believe. Yeah, so so that's that. The Intercontinental title, um, you know, and the, the perfect Bulldog thing doesn't exactly set the world on fire either. Uh, well, we... I can see why. I mean, like I said before, Bulldog's not exactly being treated. I mean, Warlord at this point, prior to Mania, Warlord's doing nothing either. So it's like just a real kind of thrown together deal with no heat, you know? Yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, Bulldog kind of just existed in 91 yeah. and, and in the 92. Like before the summer, the Wembley match, he, he really doesn't have any strong direction. For his first, like, year and a half in the company. Yeah, he's the guy that gets cut for Mania 8. Yeah, against the Berserker. Yeah. Um, There is absolutely zero bill to Dino Bravo versus the Texas Tornado or Demolition versus uh, Tenru and Katao at Mania. They just kind of get announced right at the end of the bill that, yep, these matches have also been signed. Yeah, and that would happen sometimes. I mean, to be fair, this was not unique to this WrestleMania. There was a, you know, they would always roll out a few matches every week, uh, in the, you know, the WrestleMania report. And mm-hmm. a lot of times they did not, you know, these low level, the, the matches, the bottom of the card didn't had no build whatsoever. Uh, Tenru and Kata was an obvious uh, SWS tie-in, something we're going to talk a lot about in part two. Um, I remember very much not understanding why they were on the card, who these people were, and not giving a shit. And nor did anyone else. Yeah. Them this coming is, uh... as baby faces to work a dead-in-the-water heel demolition. I mean, I talked about how it's not unprecedented to have a no-build match at WrestleMania. This may have been the least anticipated match in the history of WrestleMania, I think, <laughs> domestically speaking. No no offense to Ginitro Tenru, but... Um, no, not at all. Even though, again, their interview at WrestleMania 7, 
Yeah, questionable. Much, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they were glad that you'll get that treatment coming out over. <laughs> oh, Toyota, huh? Oh my God! Oh, I was talking about Mr. Fuji when I forgot. Oh, no, I'm talking about just, this. When he starts saying Toyota, oh, that's real bad. I guess Regis was studying his machines promos for that. <laughs> oh man, Tornado and Bravo, two guys who had been kind of featured fairly heavily in the summer of 1990, and here they are. Just again, nothing happening, guys. Yeah, real fall from grace relative positions at SummerSlam. You could say the same for Earthquake. Uh, could be worse, though. Tugboat, not even on the Mania card, despite Gorilla trying to get him on there. Um, <laughs> the Tornado, he never really got that DiBiase feud outside, despite, uh, or outside of the house shows, I should say, right? I mean, it was a house show program. Uh, DiBiase had cost him the Intercontinental title, but obviously they had plans for DiBiase. Finish off Rhodes, go to Virgil. So Tornado's odd man out. He does get a token return match uh, with Perfect on Superstars that goes to a non-finish with Bossman interfering. This is something I came across uh, in my notes, though. Uh, the Tornado headlined a show in Dallas with Fritz in his corner against Boris Zukov subbing for an injured Sergeant Slaughter. Good God. Good God. <laughs> have you got any numbers about what that did? Six. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, would, I had never heard of that before, but I saw it on History WWF, and I was like, oh, boy. Like, I, I guess, like, you know, him challenging for the title in Dallas isn't a terrible idea. Yeah. You know, but, I mean, Boris Zukov, yikes. Yeah, so... Uh, Boris, did they just bring Boris back for that one night? Because Boris had been cut. Yeah, I was going to say, what, what did they... Just him off the mothballs. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, you know, and in a sad note, um, both Kerry Von Erich and Dino Bravo die in January of 93. Yeah. Two years later. The number of premature deaths among those on the WrestleMania 7 card is, like, really awful. Yeah, it's, 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 it's actually one of the shows people draw to quite often, isn't it? Especially now, like, Animal's gone as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, but, I mean, it was, like, it was kind of jarring. 10, 15 years ago, even, you know, even before some of these guys passed, um, you know, of, of perhaps more natural cause. I mean, God, it, it, it's just real bad. Um, on a lighter note, it's uh, <laughs> some wrestling follies we need to discuss matches. So it's really funny. You and I would watch the same video compilations for uh, these time periods. Yeah. But I had not finished yet. And the video compilation that we were watching was gone. It had disappeared from the Internet. But luckily, somebody else had uh, a different one. So I watched that. It had most of the same stuff on it anyway. But he included, the, the one I watched, included two very peculiar matches. Saba Simba against the Barbarian and Paul Roma against Shane Douglas. These matches. So, and, and I was like, hey, dude, I know you've already what you've done watching your TV. You've got a handle on it. You've got to watch these matches. So <laughs> this Saba Simba Barbarian match is a strong contender for worst match of the year. <laughs> it's a car wreck. Like, they are clearly not on the same page at all. Um, <laughs> They're not even in the same fucking library. Yes. So you've got – do you know what is crazy? I thought about this afterwards. A year and a half later – these two were in one of the most random top heel stables ever with oh Cactus Jack God, in WCW. They were. Oh, imagine, <laughs> yeah, imagine watching this match and say, if you're WCW, it's like, we need these guys in a top heel group. What's the real bad? I can't remember it now because I didn't write it down. Damn it. 
What is the really absurdly blown spot in that Simba Barbarian match? The fucking spot where Barb shoots Simba in and Barb ducks down for a backdrop and Sabba Simba like grabs his head and like jumps in the air through a face plant. Except Barbarian just doesn't go down and Sabba Simba just kind of jumps in the air and like massages his head, I suppose. And the crowd just laughs. <laughs> like, this is 1991. Think of some of the shit they've seen. And they just burst out laughing at this ridiculous... It's like two kids playing wrestling in the back garden. It's, it's hideous. I forgot. That's what it is. The blown... Yeah, so it's a very standard spot where, you know, Babyface grabs the heel by the hair, rams his face down into the mat. But Barb, Barb just doesn't go down with them. <laughs> Barb doesn't go down. I don't think Simba even drops to the canvas either. So it's something just... Yeah. What the fuck is this? And I think the most appropriate way for this match to end is a clearly perturbed Tony Atlas kicking out at two, despite it being the finish. <laughs> Even before that hideous spot, they are just all over the place. There was it's no just, coordination with those two you guys. You just do not see that. I mean, yeah, the athleticism of in 1991 wasn't anything close to what you see today, but like they, these just two are not on the same page. I should tweet that out or something like that. This That's is a match. match. Uh, speaking of terrible matches, is Paul Roma Shane Douglas one, uh, it isn't far behind where, man, they bury Shane Douglas. <laughs> Did you see this? This one <laughs> where he gets beat twice. Yes. Okay. I want to make sure you saw this because you, you weren't laughing quite yet. So yeah. So he kind of kicks out before the three. Even though, and then the bell rings. Douglas yeah. does, and, and so so they keep going, and Douglas like goes for a sunset flip, and Roma kicks out, and then just beats him again. Yeah, I mean, they, they, yeah. They, Shane Douglas does the job <laughs> twice. I don't know if this is supposed to. First of all, for, the, for those who haven't seen it, I'm certain the referee ra- counted three at the wrong time because Douglas kicks out, but he he counts three. And then rings the bell. Signals for the bell and the match to end. Roma and Douglas decide, fuck this, we're carrying on. And they just keep wrestling while the crowd is like murmuring to themselves like, what the fuck's going on They're here? like, we hated this match before, why is it continuing? <laughs> it won't end. And then the referee decides he's going to start counting again for a couple more near falls. And the crowd's like, what is happening here? And then Roma beats him for a second time decisively. The referee, who looks like Father Time, goes to grab Paul Roma's wrist to raise it, and Roma just like pulls his arm away. He's like, "Get the fuck off me!" He's who living. was that referee? I love how you called him Father Time. He's just—he's—he's he's, this guy just has no idea what's going on, and Roma is just furious. Yeah, it's a—it's a very bad match and a very appropriate metaphor for Shane Douglas's uh, tenure during this run. Here, yeah, Bobby Heenan really—he's like he beat him again. I mean, they really yeah. buried Shane Douglas. He didn't put in the boots in, did not help. <laughs> he beat him again. I love that call. Um, at a more positive note, I don't, there is a baby face versus baby face. We talk about those not drawing. Well, this was not intended to draw. Tito Santana against Coco Beware at MSG in January. Coco Beware works as a subtle heel. And this I've... is kind of a fun match. And I recommend people actually watch it. I'm not joking. We love Tito and I need to find this match because I haven't seen it yet. Okay, I'll show, I think somebody has it um, separately, but yeah, it, it's it, it's a fun match because it's like this subtlety that you would never get. Like, any, well, obviously, there's no live events in 2020 um, or house, you know, what we used to call house shows, but it's just kind of like a fun deal. I don't know, and the crowd gets into it. I mean, it's not like a four star match, but it's you know a lot better than Saba Simba versus the Barbarian. 
Yeah, Tito again. He'd, he'd been around. He, d- he deserved better than uh, than what he got at Mania. But uh, yeah, th- this is this sounds like something like I'm going to check this out because two guys who were pretty much kind of doing nothing for the rest of well their time in the WWF, but pretty unique here. Yeah, it, it's something you didn't you don't see a lot. So I just wanted to mention that. And with our final note here in the Observers, Hogan Slaughter and Warrior Undertaker will be the two headline feuds all summer long after WrestleMania. Most, uh, sorry, some minor concern on the latter because the Undertaker is getting over more as a babyface at most of the arenas thus far, although everyone is raving about Percy Pringle as Paul Bearer. Including um, our fathers. In, including our dads. One little thing I will mention is on primetime, there is a sketch they do where when Paul Bearer is, is freshly into the company and he's kind of finding himself, he's not the, he's not in full Paul Bearer mode as we know him uh, in years later straight away. He's kind of a bit more normal as things start, even though he's, he's obviously the creepy dude. Uh, they do a skit on primetime where they bring out a corpse, which is just Lord Alfred Hayes, um, <laughs> which <laughs> I, I couldn't really tell the difference, to be quite honest. <laughs> um, Can't but, believe you talk like that about a countryman. Al, <laughs> Al Hayes sucks cock. He's terrible. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> my God! It's, has there been a more useless person in in the WWF than Lord Alfred Hayes? He sucked at commentary. He was all, an awful interview guy. Like he just brought nothing to the table. His WrestleMania, but, uh, his WrestleMania one backstage interviews are very bad. <laughs> I'm stunned. I'm stunned. And he's there just lying down. As, as Paul Bearer describes the, the act of uh, yeah, what a mortician does. And because it's Vincent Mann and he's trying to be funny with his Vince Mann sense of humor, he comes out with, what do you do if, uh, you know, it's a little bit, and basically hints that, you know, what happens if the, the corpse has got a stiff dick. <laughs> so this is, this is Vince asking Paul Bearer, to which Bobby Heenan comes in and steals the sign, steals the scene by kicking a field goal. <laughs> to suggest that he's just going to kick the guy's cock off. I have to watch this. Where did you find this? I can't remember I found it, but it's just like, it's from this period where like Paul Bear is just starting to get over and he's like taking this deadly seriously as he's doing, as Lord Al Hayes is just lying there completely motionless. And And we're talking about kicking people's dicks off to the uprights. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's just Heenan trying to, Heenan being fantastic. But uh, this is actually a pretty good uh, precursor of things to come for our second taping because these are the two headline feuds, and as we saw last year when they went their separate ways, Hogan and Warrior, things are going to play out a little differently this time. Yeah, let's bring the focus back to the athletes here as we close up. We have Hogan Slaughter, Warrior Undertaker, the two post-mania feuds. Um, it is fascinating, and we are going to look at it in great detail in Episode 2, how they play out vis-a-vis the year prior, because it is very different. Hogan now is the champion. Warrior no longer is the champion. Uh, it's funny. Warrior gets the hot feud. Just like Hogan, who wasn't the champion, got the hot feud in '90. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting little pattern, and of course we'll we'll we'll, we'll track and trail how these things go uh, throughout the rest of the year. But as we approach, obviously our, our part two taping is we're going to look at from April uh, through to June. That's pretty much what we got on the horizon here: Hogan Slaughter, Warrior Taker, some uh, new blood coming into the promotion. And, of course, a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes as well. So, Kyle, closing thoughts, if you have any further, on uh, on the first three months here of 1991. Look, uh, Sergeant Slaughter wasn't a good idea. <laughs> There's just no other way to say it. <laughs> wasn't a good idea, and it completely taints everything else. Uh, there wasn't a lot else really going on in the promotion. I mean, 
DiBiase, Virgil, um, you know, some other stuff that might have been positive. It just cannot outweigh the negative that is Sergeant Slaughter. And, uh, you know, if you thought the company was in bad shape in 1990, wait till you see what we got for you in 1991. <laughs> and on that positive note, this, it's actually funny to, this is probably, even though as, as chaotic as this has been, looking at the, the, the media fallout and how bad the numbers have been for, for, for the Sarge experiment, this may be the least turbulent period of this year in terms of what's coming. Yes, part two is going to be, I think, really fun. We are going to, um, you know, basically just focus on wrestling. It's going to be the one part that really there isn't any controversy where the slaughter stuff is, it's, we can't say it's in the rearview mirror because he's still working, you know, a title program, but the controversy's kind of died down. Sahorian doesn't hit yet. So this April through June period, um, I think it's a good way to put a bow on our discussions that we we're having in 1990 about the Hogan Warrior dynamic. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward very much to that. Kyle, I cannot thank you enough uh, for spending these three hours uh, on part one of this series. This has been a blast and uh, we've got a lot more fun coming up. Can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Everybody, thank you very much for listening. Uh, keep it tuned here. Squared Stiff with Zet Radio, we are continuing our 1991 series very shortly. So with that said, for the great Kyle Ross, I am Lee Rourke and we are out of here. Talk to you again soon.